0: Hello everyone, this is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. Thomas J. Watson, the famous former chairman and CEO of IBM, once said that, quote, nothing so conclusively proves a person's ability to lead others as what they do from day to day to lead themselves. And in my experience, the most effective leaders prove to be people who've invested a lot of time and energy digging into themselves. They've discovered what makes them tick, what life experiences shape their values and beliefs, and what behaviors interfere with their overall effectiveness. The best leaders, in other words, know themselves really well. For many years now, I've been especially invested in my own self-discovery and along the way have grown very interested in learning about the self-critical voice that I have in my head. It's a voice that at times has urged me to take career risks that truly paid off And it's a voice that other times judged me so harshly and profoundly undermined my self-belief and self-confidence. It's the unsupported voice in my head that I've been most interested in taming, as I found that when I'm not being dragged down by its harshness, I tend to perform optimally. And perhaps this is also very true for you too, So today we're going to explore that inner voice of ours, and our guest has done some extraordinary research that not only proves our inner voice is indeed a great value to us, he's found many clever ways to neuter its negative side. Ethan Cross is a professor at the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan and the author of the new bestseller, Chatter, the voice in our head, why it matters and how to harness it. In Chatter, cross-explores the silent conversations we have with ourselves. And in his book, as well as in the conversation you're about to hear, he shares clever ways of taming our self-talk that, left to its own devices, could otherwise sink our moods, strain our relationships, influence us to make bad decisions, and cause us to cave under pressure. The conversations we have with ourselves can either aid us or harm us, And the next hour is devoted to helping you make the voice in your head an ally, not a foe. And with that, let me welcome Ethan Cross to the Leap from the Heart podcast.
1: Thanks for having me. Been looking forward to this conversation.
0: Me too. So I appreciate hearing that. And right before we started this morning, I went on Amazon to see how your book is doing, and it's a number one new release. So that's an indication to me at least that many people not only struggle with what you call chatter, these negative thoughts that spiral and undermine our success, but also that they're desperately wanting to learn how to master their self-talk. So I'm excited about the conversation we're about to have. And before we get into some of your really clever solutions, I want you to start by telling us about the human brain and why we have chatter in the first place?
1: Well, it's a great question. So we've evolved this thing called language, and language is a tool that we use to navigate the world successfully. And so when we talk about using language silently, that's really our inner voice. And we use that inner voice to do things like hold nuggets of information in minds. If I asked you to memorize a phone number, just repeat it silently in your head, You're using your inner voice there. We also use language to do things like simulate and plan for the future. So before I give a big presentation to a distinguished audience, I'm rehearsing what I'm going to say in my head before that presentation. I'm also then hearing what the unruly audience members, you know, the question they're going to ask me and then I'm responding to them. Usually saying things that I would never say in public, but I'm going through that simulation. Language is helping me do that. And language, as I talk about in chat or silent speech, it helps us do a lot of other really useful things. It's like the Swiss army knife of the mind. But what do we know about tools? Tools can be really useful in some contexts, but they can also get us into trouble in other contexts. A hammer you can use to build a house, if you give me a hammer, it's a source of destruction. And so for many people, the inner voice, when it comes to our problems, we try to use language to work through our problems, but the tool gets jammed up, it gets stuck, and that's when we get stuck in thought loops, worry, rumination, catastrophizing, which can be really harmful to folks, I think writ large, but in particular, folks who are working in an organizational context.
0: So, interestingly, at the end of your book, you talk about this student who gave you this epiphany, and the way that she was expressing herself was like, hey, I'm now graduating from college. I've had to go through all this personal torment and have this voice of doubt in my mind, and now you're presenting me with this information. And so, you just said something that made me want to ask you, you know, why are we all sort of coming at this now? Like, in other words we've all had this voice in our minds that has been unruly at times why your book now why this research now and why all the interest now as opposed to you know other parts of history
1: perhaps yeah this problem of chatter has been with us for, I think, as long as we've been talking to ourselves, which is <laughs> for as long as we've had language. I mean, I talk about this as a biblical problem. If you think about like Adam and Eve and the snake, right? And, and what do you do with the apple, right? Chatter, right? We've been worrying about stuff throughout time. Up until recently, though, this has been a very private experience, right? And it's also been one that we haven't had great tools to study Objectively, We're talking about things that are happening in our mind. How do, you, how do you see those thoughts? How do you change them and how do you observe them? And I think over the past several decades, we've developed tools to do that, ranging from really clever behavioral techniques to fMRI scanners and the like which have brought a level of objectivity to the study of the inner voice that makes it feel like it's something that we can actually have a conversation about now, a scientific conversation.
0: Hmm. It's interesting. You quote ABC News journalist and meditation advocate Dan Harris as saying, the voice in my head is an asshole. I actually had a friend of mine, I said something out loud that it was my inner voice. And a friend of mine said, wow, like that voice inside of you is such a prick. And so, uh, so I related to the Dan Harris quote, and I, I think we all can. So makes me wonder, like, why are our inner voices? Why are they so critical and tormenting? And, you know, why are they a saboteur?
1: Yeah. It's funny, I did researching the book, I articulated that quote to a lot of people. Everyone has their own pet name for their nasty inner voice. Asshole is pretty tame, itty-bitty shitty committee in my head, obnoxious roommate, so forth and so on. So I've labeled this voice. Look, the ability to be critical is, I think this is a useful skill to be self-critical, to be able to subject ourselves to a critical lens to make sure that we are performing optimally, behaving in ways that we desire. And I think what often happens is that capacity to be critical, to subject ourselves to that, it can get a little bit out of hand. The boundaries of that, we can take it too far. You know, like right now there is a movement in the world that some have labeled toxic positivity. It's the idea that we should try to rid ourselves of all negative thoughts, anything self-critical. We should be totally self-compassionate. And Mm. I love the idea of self-compassion. I'm all about positivity whenever possible. However, I would not wish on my worst enemy the ability to not experience negativity in small doses at times right? The ability to experience some anxiety when you've got something important coming up, that's a really useful experience. Like negative emotions, we evolve the capacity to have them for a reason. They're functional in small doses. When we start experiencing those, those feelings too intensely and over long periods of time, that's when they become harmful. And that's when that inner critic I think really becomes a problem.
0: So whose voice is that inner critic? Is it always our own? Is it a critical parent that we're, you know, embodying?
1: Yeah. Many perfectly sane people can hear the voices of other people in their head. If you ask me right now to hear my mom's voice, you know, telling me to clean my room, I just did it, right? Mm-hmm. Like I'm capable of doing it. I know my mom's not in my head. I know I generated that voice. But we can hear lots of different voices and some people hear their own voice in the way that they represent it abstractly. But people also report at times hearing voices of parents and partners and bosses. When I was in graduate school, I heard my, my graduate mentor telling me not to fuck up <laughs> plenty as I was working on my thesis. So there are different sources that we could bring to bear. <laughs> he was very supportive otherwise. How <laughs> was he? <laughs> yeah. Hard to tell based it, on that. Yeah. yeah. But it was always prefaced by, you're going to do great, just don't fuck up. <laughs> so, it's like the yin and the yang.
0: Well, when I was writing my book, and I'll get to this in a second, but you had the same experience, I very frequently, particularly in the very beginning of the process of literally writing. So you're looking at a blank screen or a blank piece of paper, and I hear this voice going, you're not a writer, no one wants to hear what you have to say, and all these other really, truly undermining kinds of things that actually were, like, really believable. Like, that's my truth in this moment. And so... As I was alluding to, you said that when you were writing this book, you had the very same thing
1: happen to you. So why do we have that in common? Probably because we care about what we are producing. We want it to land well. And we're constantly subjecting ourselves to checks, right, to make sure that we're not putting in the context of writing something, that we're not putting something out there that isn't of a quality that we hope it to be, right? That's where that critical inner voice is coming in the context of writing. It's saying, is this really up to snuff?
0: You're saying it's a benign voice that's trying to nudge us into better behavior?
1: Well, yeah, I think that these kinds of experiences, like being critical... Being critical per se is not a bad thing. It's when the inner critic takes over and stops being in touch with reality. Like we have different sides to ourselves. We have a promotion focus where we're trying to be all we can be, but we also have a prevention focus, Like We don't want to screw up. And the, the capacity to balance both of those orientations is really important. And there's a lot of data that shows that people who can balance both of those sides themselves achieve well right? But the key here is balance. It's not letting one side dominate. And when you let the critical voice take over entirely, that's when you get in trouble. When my inner critic perks up and says, is this paragraph really good enough? That's not a bad thing, right? It makes me actually read it carefully, show it to someone else. Hey, what do you think? Am I there? When it gets to the point that it's paralysis, I can't do anything, and then we're talking something else.
0: So I did experience that paralysis. Yeah. You know, we were talking before we started recording where I, I literally felt like I can't produce anything right now. Nothing's gonna come out of me. And so I had to go and create a distraction, go for a long walk or you know, yeah. drive or something just to get my space. And
1: so you just said it. I'm gonna you said it to get your space. What happens when that critic perks up and we experience chatter, we zoom in so narrowly on the problem, we lose all perspective. And so what the science in this area suggests is useful in that case is doing things to zoom out, to broaden our perspective, to get space. And what's fascinating to me are the many different ways that exist to do precisely that. There are things you could do on your own, ways to change the way you think about things or behaviors you can engage in. There are specific kinds of conversations you can have with other people. And there are ways of interacting with your environment. do that, So there are lots of tools that exist that can help when that happens.
0: So this is a really important part of your book. So I want to dig into this a little bit. And this is coming up a little bit earlier than I wanted to, but it's flowing perfectly. So in your book, you actually make this point that we can think of the mind as a lens and our inner voice is the button that zooms it either in or out. And so in the simplest sense, you're saying that chatter is what happens when we zoom in so close on something, which is what you just said. And it inflames our emotions to all the alternative ways of thinking about the issue that might cool us down. So it takes us out of our state. We're unable to see the big picture here. And so right after a boss or a colleague says something hurtful or right after we've made some mistake that we think is life-ending, how do we using your expertise, effectively zoom out and regain the perspective before we go down the rabbit hole. So it's one thing to ultimately get there. But how do you know, Okay, I'm in a bad space here. Now I need to extract myself. And this is what I'm going to do about it.
1: Well, so step one is being aware that you're going down the rabbit hole. And I think once you understand what the rabbit hole is, once you know what chatter is, it's usually pretty apparent to people when they're experiencing it. And so, so just understanding how your mind works in this regard is really important. Then the question is, okay, well, once you realize it's happening, it's, you know, I'm not thinking objectively, I'm going to that place, which we know is not fun. The question is, what do you do about it? And, you know, again, there are probably 20 different science-based tools I talk about in the book that can help in this regard, that science is unearthed. Different tools work for different people in different situations. I'll give you a couple that I personally rely on. One thing I'll do is something called temporal distancing. I'll travel in time. I'll think about how am I going to feel about this exchange that just happened a month from now or six months from now. When people engage in that mental exercise, that form of mental time travel, what it does is it makes clear that what we're experiencing right now, as awful as it is, it's temporary. It will eventually pass. And that gives people hope, which we know can be a bomb for our chatter. Another thing you could do is you can try to coach yourself through the problem like you're giving advice to someone else. We know that people are much better. At advising other people than they are taking their own advice and what we've learned is that you can actually use language to think about yourself like you're another person so use your name to coach yourself for your problem all right ethan how are we going to handle the situation you're essentially talking to yourself silently i should add the caveat like you're advising another person and so that's another tool you can use other people in our lives other people can be tremendously helpful tools for helping us regulate our chatter. They can also be vulnerabilities. And so I spent a lot of time in the book talking about the yin and yang of other people and how they can help us. Find other people who are skilled at providing you with empathy and support. And you talk a lot about this on your podcast, but knowing that there are other people there who care for us, who take the time to really, truly listen, like that's valuable. But in and of itself, it's not sufficient for getting through our chatter. Because what we also need are people who can also help break us out of that tunnel vision when we get stuck. People who can help give us a sense of the bigger picture. So, okay, Mark, you've experienced this before with a guest. How'd you deal with it last time? Or how long did it actually bother you? Or, Or let me tell you about what I do when I get into a difficult conversation with someone. Here's how I neutralize it. I'm listening to you, but I'm also trying to nudge you to broaden your perspective a bit. And so those are a couple of things you could do.
0: You know, what popped into my mind when I read this section of your book, we kind of emote, we kind of want to have people hear our story. And what you're saying is that that kind of venting can go on, but only briefly, because A, you're going to annoy the person that's going to try to help you. But B, what will really help you is for people to say, okay, you know, dust yourself off and here's how you go back and solve this. So tell us more about this, how you learn this, because this is really powerful.
1: I think, and this is something that, you know, just in talking about the ideas in the book, that it really powerfully butts up against the message we get from a lot of the work out there, this idea, there's this popular idea that we need to just vent our emotions when we're upset, that simply talking about how we feel will magically make us feel better. And this idea goes way back. Aristotle, Freud—they—they they, they championed it, and it has really stuck in popular culture. But here's what we know: so when you find someone to unload your feelings to, it feels good to find that person to chat about your emotions with. Like data shows that that enhances the friendship bonds between us, right? Like it's powerful knowing there's someone there who cares enough about us to validate our experience and just hear us out. But if you just keep doing that, all it does is reactivate those negative feelings. So you're just keeping the flame burning, like you're just rehearsing all the bad things. You're not doing anything to reframe how you think about it. So that's where the second step comes into play, which is talk about your feelings a bit, bond with the other person, but then also talk to someone who can help shift your perspective so you can actually nip the problem in the bud. Both of those elements are the key to having conversations that actually help people get through their chatter. And a lot of people don't realize that because they think, oh, it feels so good to just talk Mm -hmm. about emotions. It feels so Mm -hmm. good. But this may be too extreme an analogy, but there are lots of things that feel really good in the moment that don't have long-term benefit. You know, drugs being like one of them. And I don't want to equate talking about our emotions like drugs, but We need to balance both the short and the long term. And the science provides prescriptions for how to do that. And that's what I try to articulate in the book.
0: So you use the words articulate. You're very articulate. And you just described this perfectly. I'm curious as to, so do I intentionally go find people who I think can be direct and give me the, okay, snap out of it. It's time to talk about results here and, you know, what we're going to do about this. Or do I coach friends of mine to do that? So I have a group of people that I would ordinarily go to when I'm feeling down or upset about a situation. And do I coach them and say, hey, if I come to you with a situation in the future where I'm really upset can you promise me that you'll let me wallow in it for a few minutes before doing what's most important, which is to redirect me and to help me figure out a solution? Can I have that agreement? Or do you look for people who've already proven that they can do that kind of a thing?
1: Well, so I think you could try both. I personally am extremely deliberate about who I approach for support with my chatter. There are many people who I love very, very much and who I'm pretty sure love me back, I don't talk to them about about chatter at all. I I actively stay away because I know they're just going to rev me up in ways that aren't good for my health. There are other people, however, who are really good at doing this. And I know this from previous experiences I've had with them. So there are three people in my personal life I go to to talk about my chatter, four people in my professional life, and they're great. Now, could you teach people how to do this? I sure hope so. That's one of the things I hope that people get after they read this chapter in the book, which is, hey, here's how I can not only seek out good chatter support for myself, but how can I be a better chatter advisor to others? And so I'm extremely mindful of these principles when other people come to me with their problems. And I think it's why they keep coming back. And so I guess, you know, buyer beware if you get too good at this. You may have lots of people wanting to chat with you. There is an art to doing this. And as a scientist, you know, I'm not totally comfortable talking about art, but I think when you're dealing with the heart and emotions, there is an element of art that comes into play. And what I mean by that is this. You know, you said before, if you go to a buddy and say, hey, just promise me you'll let me talk for a couple of minutes before giving me the advice component. It may be a couple of minutes for you. It may be a couple of seconds for someone else. It may be longer for another person. And I think part of the artistry to being a good chatter advisor is being able to figure out how long does that person need to talk about their feelings before they become receptive to getting into the bigger picture.
0: I love that you're that intentional. And you're right, you know, if I were to come to somebody and I said, hey, I'm having this situation and my mind's telling me this and they're quick to the solutions and they're not letting me, you know, have a moment where I'm just relating how I'm feeling about it, obviously I'm going to shut down my response to their best advice. So the idea, though, is to be really thoughtful about who you're going to and to realize the people that you sort of intimated that certain people will trigger an even worse reaction in you so you know you don't want to go to them. But really knowing if I'm in this situation, who can I go to that will help me resolve this as quickly as possible. I have found, not that you need any validation either, but I have found that that's a really powerful thing to do, that there are people that can just, they know you and they can just go snap out of it. And they go, okay, thanks. I'm back on track.
1: I've had the exact same experience. You know, it's like, I think of it as creating a board of chatter advisors, so to speak, like who's on your board that you know you can turn to when you've got problems in this part of your life or this other part and different people, I think, you know, are, are useful depending on the domain. I don't go to the same people to talk about problems with my kids than, you know, that I do problems with journal editors or publishers. So so I've really benefited from this as well.
0: You're very good at anticipating my next questions. And, you know, the Wall Street Journal publishes on the weekends, they'll pick a senior executive in a company, and then they'll ask them, who is on your board of advisors? And they always have ridiculously impressive people that are on their board of advisors. But it's made me wonder, like, what do you talk to them about? I mean, are you talking about, like, how do I drive more revenue? Or, you know, what's the future of our company? Or are they getting into these kinds of personal issues? So you just made the answer for me, which is choose wisely. Like if you're looking for revenue, find people that are in business that are really good at finding new sources and get their ideas. But when you're talking about what you call a chatter advisor, I kind of love that, you know, pick different people.
1: Yeah, if we stick with that metaphor a little bit further, I mean, We are the ultimate organization right here, ourselves, that we want to succeed. We want to be successful. And other people can play a very powerful role in helping us do that or getting in the way, right? Like what our parents, you know, tell us when we're growing up, it's, you know, choose your friends wisely, right? The same is true when it comes to choose the people you go to for support. And I'll say one more thing, Mark, you're working me up here to get me really excited (laughs) you know, like let's think right now we're recording this right now during the midst of the COVID pandemic, right? What's the advice that you see CDC and other organizations telling people, talk to others, interact with others, connect. Mm -hmm. It's not that simple, right? Yes. The right kinds of connections are incredible, but the wrong kinds of connections can range from being benign to even harmful in certain contexts. So I think, we have the goods. We've got the science to tell us how to find the right kinds of connections. And I think it behooves anyone who's interested in excelling, whether that be in their personal life or on their, you know, at work in their job as a leader, to follow these principles. Because, you know, why not?
0: Fantastic. I want to go back now to the earlier part of your book and to make sure that we're hitting on some of the basic tenets of why the solutions work, but also some of the myths that we've all believed, which the most important one is this idea of Ram Dass, be here now, or live in the present moment, that we hear a lot of that. We're advised to be present. And you're saying that that's flawed advice because it runs counter to our own biology. And actually, in truth, we human beings spend a third to a half of our time in our waking life not being present. And so that's a stunning statistic. So tell us where we go when we slip away like this. And what are the benefits and the downsides of not staying present?
1: So, you know, to be clear, nothing wrong with being in the present at certain times. I think it can be great. I think it can also be a powerful tool for coping with distress. But if the goal is always to be in the present, good luck, (laughs) because that is not the way we've evolved. So we have evolved the capacity to travel in time in our minds, and we do that quite a bit. We can go into the past to learn from our mistakes, to savor victories. We can also transport ourselves into the future to plan, right? So this ability to travel in time, to fantasize, like this is an amazing human superpower that distinguishes us from other species. I don't think the answer to well-being is to shut down that capacity. I think instead the solution is to figure out how do we master it? How do we figure out how to travel in time more effectively without getting stuck, without ruminating about the past or worrying about the future. And so it's a slightly different perspective. Again, being in the moment at the right time when you're on the ball field, when you're having at a concert and just this can be great. But let's not suggest that the goal is to always be present. It's just not, in my view, an attainable goal, nor would it be one that is desirable.
0: Well, you mentioned COVID a minute ago, and it makes me want to ask you whether you think that all of the time that we've, we we have a lot of extra time, it seems to me, to be in our heads. This is just tangential. But I wonder if you think all of this incremental isolation we're experiencing because of COVID is one reason why we're seeing a rise in mental health challenges
1: at every age level. Yeah, we're actually doing some research on this right now is a roughly threefold increase in rates of clinical anxiety and depression. We know chatter plays a big role in both of those kinds of mood disorders, the thought loops, the perseveration. And I think there are multiple factors contributing to it. But being alone and having a lot of time to be alone with your thoughts, I think, is certainly one of those potential explanations, especially because... It's not like we're being alone with our thoughts in the context of, you know, wonderful things happening around us, but we're alone with our thoughts while living through a once in a century pandemic up until recently, and maybe still for many, like political upheaval and tribalism, economic instability. So these are really chatter provoking times. And I think we're seeing the consequence of that in those epidemic rates of anxiety and depression.
0: So any solutions, any suggestions based on what you've learned so far? In other words, if I'm listening to this and I'm connecting to what we're talking about, are there things that I should and can do that can ease this? Totally. And
1: I want to remind people, I think 30% rates of anxiety and depression, really high compared to the norm, threefold increase. But 70% of us are not suffering from clinical manifestations of those disorders. So there's a lot of variability. And we know that there are tools that people can use if they're really struggling to manage their chatter. Studying those tools is what I've spent the past 20 years doing in my career. And so I think there are ways that you could try to shift the way you think about the situation that can be very helpful. There are ways of harnessing our relationships with others in ways that we've discussed that can be useful. There are also things we can do just ways of interacting with the world around us i'll give you a couple examples oftentimes when we're experiencing chatter we feel like we don't have control of our thoughts so we can compensate for that experience by creating order around us many people report when they're anxious they tidy up they organize i do this i'm not a neat guy i'm a pretty disorganized guy but guess what when i'm experiencing chatter i'll tidy up my office i'll do the dishes like research shows that that can help Engaging in rituals can be really useful too. Rituals are structured sequences of behavior that have meaning, and they provide people with a chatter-fighting cocktail of sorts. They help in a variety of ways. They give us a sense of order. They also distract us from our our worries momentarily. They also connect us. Rituals have meaning that go beyond us as individuals, and when we transcend ourselves, When we tap into something that has more meaning, we feel and our concerns a little bit smaller in contrast. And that's a pretty good thing when it comes to your profits.
0: So let's explore this because there are several things that you recommend that my wife, like there's certain things that I do on the weekend where she thinks like, oh, it's Sunday. And, you know, what she's really reflecting on is a perception that I'm cleaning something more or I'm making the yard look perfect or my closets, whatever, you know, some element that thinks that I'm overdoing the getting my life in order thing. But what it allows me to do is to just release all thoughts about what I have to do and just enjoy my Sunday and my weekend. So I find it to be very powerful. And as I'm reading your book, as I read your book and as I'm hearing all these different ideas, I found that like I've discovered these on my own. Yeah. But through, you know, hunting and pecking and blindfolded through life, I'm figuring these things out. So let's take a little time and talk about each one of them. So you just mentioned rituals. Like, what are some of the rituals that you use or advocates? for or why do rituals
1: even work well rituals i also have a, a weekend ritual and you know I, maybe it's uh i don't know cliches where i right work i'll go to the farmer's market i go to the exact same vendors at the farmer's market every saturday morning i go to my bread guy go to my vegetable guy go to the fish woman and then i come home and i make breakfast for my kids and then we go outside and do something together. And we all, I always do it in the same exact sequence. And so, first of all, that has structure. If there's an order to it. I know every Saturday morning, doesn't matter if it's going to be 95 degrees and humid or six inches of snow, I'm doing it. So that gives me a sense of control. And we know that when you're experiencing chatter, we don't feel in control of things. So I'm compensating for the lack of control in my head by controlling my behavior. It's one thing it does. It also distracts us. It takes our mind away temporarily from the source of our distress, gives us a little mental space. But then in my case, it also has a lot of meaning. The ritual I just described is one that I created but a lot of the rituals we engage in are actually religious and cultural rituals that when we engage in these things like praying or you know mourning someone according to our religions, that taps us into a much broader collective. And when we do that, again, it's not about us when we're tapping into a broader collective. It's about the collective. And we feel smaller in that context. Now, Normally, you don't want to tell someone you are small to feel smaller, but when it comes to our problems, our problems shrink, and that's a good thing, too. We realize, hey, there's more to this than just my worries about the argument I had with my graduate student or the chair of my department, right? There's more to it than that. There's a universe out there, and so that's why I like to think of a ritual as a chatter fighting cocktail. It helps in a variety of different ways. And what's interesting is that we've been doing these things for a really long time. Cultures around the world prescribe rituals during stressful times, right? Birth of a child can be a very unsettling experience filled with stress. There are birthing rituals. Likewise, there are grieving rituals that we regularly engage in. So we've kind of, to your point, stumbled on This tool, along with many of the other ones I talk about in the book, what I see science as having done over the past few decades is really showing what these tools are, shining a spotlight on them, showing how they work, and really laying them out there for people so we don't have to wait to discover them, blindfolded, as, as you described, but we can just see, okay, here's what we know about the science in terms of managing this inner voice and we can be more proactive and deliberate now. we use that.
0: I had Jim Lair on the podcast a few months ago and he's um, amongst other things, a sports psychologist. And what he does is he helps professional players of every sport. Think about what's going through your mind in between like a golf shot or in between a tennis You score a point and now you're waiting for the next guy to serve, or you're gonna be the person to serve. What goes on in that moment before that actually happens? and it all boils down to rituals. It all boils down to having the same consistent thought or the same consistent behaviors. And what struck me was that he's dealing with professional athletes. So these are the very best. And in your book, you actually talk about Rafael Nadal, who is obviously one of the world's greatest tennis players, but he has what appeared to be almost neurotic behavior in the way that he enters the court and situates his water bottles. So tell us about this and why it's so effective for somebody like him.
1: Yes, Nadal's story is really a powerful one. As you said, one of the greatest tennis players of all time. And in an interview, I think for his autobiography, he basically said, a reporter asked him like, what's the hardest thing that you combat that you like struggle with on the court? And he said, the hardest thing I struggle with is to battle the voices inside my head which is astounding to me, right? It's, that not, is astounding. it's not the other elite athlete who's been training his whole life to beat you. No, it's the voice inside his head. It's himself. And so what does he do? He engages in these quirky rituals that he's often made fun of for. But what he says is, these rituals provide me with a sense of order that I lack. So he's doing exactly what science suggests these rituals do for us. It's helping him feel more in control when his thoughts feel out of control. And can people take these rituals too far? Sure. Certain kinds of obsessive compulsive disorder are characterized by excessive reliance on rituals, but that's a case of taking what I think of as an otherwise adaptive tool and just pushing it to an extreme. And to use the metaphor of tools again, like any tool can become harmful if you use it inappropriately. Like I said before, a hammer, really useful, but it can be a source of destruction too. So I think rituals sometimes in popular culture get a bad rap, it's easy to forget that our religions and cultures are telling, are giving us these rituals all the time. And they have been for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. So they're really an age old practice that can be quite useful.
0: Well like President Obama was notorious for having the same color suits and you know basically he didn't have to pick anything. Everything went together. So he just grabbed the suit, grabbed the shirt, grabbed the tie and he wasn't having to be consumed by what am I going to wear today? And does this go together? And and that seems sort of crazy. But at the same time the doll is coming out walking on the court and putting his name badge on the chair in the same direction always, and then turning his water bottles in a certain way. So that could be judged as sort of, hmm, you know, this is a little unusual. Like, is it that hard to pick a suit? Or do you really need your bottles to be facing one direction? But there is a great benefit to this. What
1: is it? Well, the benefit is that for those individuals, you know, we we all have our own chatter triggers, right? Like the sources of distress that can lead us to get stuck. And what I think we see happening with Obama and Nadal is that they've figured out ways of preventing those chatter triggers from being pulled in ways that can really undermine them. So with Obama, it's the suit and the nine almonds or however many he, he always ate, you know, before bed, right. Reducing that mental burden right. yeah. uh, for Nadal. It's who knows what the thoughts, you know, what chatter he starts experiencing, but lining up his water bottles diagonally, you know, with the court and, Sipping from one and then the other and then the other, putting him down nicely and flipping through his hair before every serve, like that does it for him. And so it speaks to, I think, the idiosyncratic nature of chatter, right? Like we all experience it, but how we experience it and when can be very different. And the tools that we use to regulate it also are going to vary. And this actually gets to a big point that I end on in the book with, it, with this idea of a toolbox, I think what science has done really well is articulate the different tools that exist for managing chatter. You know, I I talk about 20 or so of them in the book. But what we don't yet know is which combinations of tools work best for different people in different situations. Mm -hmm. Like the science just isn't there yet. We're working on it. But I think there's an opportunity for listeners to work on that in their own lives, right? So I think the challenge that we all face is to figure out, what are the specific tools that work for us when we're dealing with these different kinds of chatter? And it might be that work-related chatter lends itself to certain combinations of tools, and your personal chatter may you know, be better suited with another set of tools. And I think that's where there's self-exploration that could be done, and, and doing it could be profitable.
0: So let's talk about another one of these, which is these lucky charms. So, you know, remember rabbit's feet or rabbit's foot? You know, that was like, that was supposed to be, it's something I've never understood. It, It makes, I don't know what the history of that is, but it obviously is in some circles, people carry rabbit's foot. So I'm reading your book and I'm thinking... Actually, like there are times where you just have a sense that there's a little more power to something you're carrying or something that's on your desk. So tell us about
1: that. Yeah. So this really speaks to research on placebos, um, which I, I think is just so fascinating. I poured over all this work for the book. I've done some research in this area myself. I still find it just to be this is remarkable. Like the human mind is a quirky, Quirky organ, quirky thing. So, what do we know? We know that if you give people a sugar pill, as an example, and you tell them, hey, take this, and it's going to make you feel better, it's going to help relieve your depression or your anxiety. Research shows that if you can get a person to believe that consuming a totally inert substance is going to have a beneficial effect, it actually goes on to have that effect in many cases. So there are studies which show that placebos could be useful for treating mild and moderate forms of depression. That's fascinating, right? No side effects with those placebos. And when I say sugar pill, you know, sub in a rabbit's foot or your, you know, sweaty underwear or the athlete's case where they wear the same underwear before every game. What this research speaks to is the power of belief and the power of our beliefs to influence how we think, feel, and behave, and even how our body physiologically responds. And the conundrum here is this. We don't have full control over our beliefs, right? Like, So I might, for example, say, yeah, you're going to feel better, Ethan, but maybe that inner critic perks up and says, well, maybe you won't. Maybe you'll never feel better. Maybe you're just gonna be like this other person and be depressed the rest of your life. We have these conversations we have with ourselves that put limitations on how much we really buy into an idea. But now let's think about the placebo work, right? So now you have a trusted physician or scientist saying, do this, it will make you feel better. How do I know? Look at the degrees on my wall, right? I've been doing this for 30 years. You are gonna feel better. There is certainty that comes with that. And that certainty can have real power for reducing our chatter.
0: That's amazing, isn't it? I mean, when you think about it. It's a mind blower. I mean, right? the technical yeah. term
1: I use, it's a leaping mind blower.
0: I actually had a foot problem from years and years of running marathons and stuff. And so I went to my doctor and he goes, I want you to try this. He goes, I think this could work for you. So it was just a pill. So he goes, just... Try it for 30 days and just shoot me an email and tell me if you think it helped you. So immediately it helped me. And I was like, wow, I don't know what he just gave me, but this is pretty cool because I'm not in any pain at all. So I shot him an email and said, yeah, you picked the right thing. And he goes, there's no scientific evidence that this works. (laughs) Because I wasn't going to tell you that before, but there's absolutely no science that would support this. But if it works for you, keep using it. So that's your belief system right there.
1: That's the belief system. And I think there's a, you know, we're talking about this in the context of medicine, but I think there's an important lesson here in the organizational context when leading others, right? Which is leaders are in a position to give those around them that are working with them and for them the confidence to do things. And so I will often try to give my team a belief like, you're going to nail this interview. I have no doubt that you're going to kill this, right? Like, I think there's power that can come from the messages we give to those who we interact with that builds on this idea. And so I'm often very deliberate about doing that with my team before high stress events, trying to, you know, yeah, it's a pump up, but it's a pump up that science suggests can be really, really meaningful because what you can end up doing is activating a self-fulfilling prophecy in those around you, right? So if I'm giving you this belief that you are going to succeed in this context, yeah. and you really believe that, you then start doing things to succeed. And so I think there is an organizational implication here, too.
0: I'm so grateful that you transitioned into that because I'm completely in agreement. And so now let's go back to your PhD advisor who gave you the, you can do it, Ethan, and then don't fuck it up. <laughs> and yeah. so, yeah. why do we feel compelled to add that? You know, I mean, if I'm writing a PhD thesis, I don't really need to be reminded that I could fuck it up. Pardon me, yes. audience. I'm, you know. Yeah.
1: Well, all I'll say is I have taken many things from my PhD advisor, and among them is the message, you're going to do great. But I have left off the don't fuck it up piece of, <laughs> of advice when you know i I think i think most people as you know you're saying are aware of that to some degree right and so i do think that in the case of my advisor what made him in part so amazingly successful is he had both of these two orientations we talked about before this promotion focus be all you can be do all you can do which can be very very helpful i think for driving success but You also need to set some limits on it, right? So, like, let's make sure that we're being all we can be, but we're still having like quality control checks here. Let's not put stuff out there that's of shaky quality, right? And I think that was what that message was about: was like, kill it, but still prepare,
0: do your best work. Yes, I get that. It's also like telling people, you know, you can walk on water. That's sort of bad advice,
1: right? Yeah, that's that's taking it to an extreme. Yeah, we still need to do due diligence. But, you know, do your due diligence and then go for it. Ethan, we have a podcast
0: tradition where we briefly break away from the discussion and transition into what we call the heartbeat round. What I'd like to do is ask you a dozen or so questions about your life philosophy and influences and have you answer these questions in a quick, instinctive answer. In other words, in a heartbeat. Are you game?
1: I'm game. Let's do it.
0: All right. One thing this past year has taught you.
1: The power of good friends and social connections.
0: A lucky charm you carry on you or have sitting on your desk?
1: Photos of my family, daughters and wife. An
0: unhelpful self-story that still occasionally nags you.
1: Chatter about saying things I shouldn't have said in a sticky conversation.
0: Something really great about growing up in Brooklyn.
1: Chicken Parmesan heroes.
0: hmm heroes is not a word i hear out west the emotion
1: that does people the most harm anxiety run rampant one
0: book you believe everyone listening should read
1: victor frankel's man's search for meaning
0: a prediction about the future you're pretty
1: certain is going to come true we will get through the pandemic and rebound and quickly forget about this moment in time
0: A trait you most admire in other people courage that's hard The quality that derails the most leadership careers. Uh, A lack of intellectual humility. Your synonym for the word heart. Soul. A place in nature you love
1: above all others. The Austrian mountains.
0: And one thing you wish you could teach every workplace manager around the globe. How to
1: control their emotions more effectively.
0: Amen to that. Awesome. Those were great. The Victor Frankel and the sort of intellectual humility are two answers that repeatedly come up in this process. And I don't always ask the same questions, but mm. very, very similar. So and now you made me I'm very hungry for a chicken parm. Me too. <laughs> All right, let's get back to our questions. One other component, and so we've kind of talked about this too. When I was writing my book and I was finding that that voice in my head that was very, very critical, that was telling me that I couldn't do it. There were times where it felt so immobilizing that I just knew I couldn't just sit here and just try to produce something. So I would go do something. And and the ones that were the most transformational for me were, and this was like my wife grabbing me by the ear and saying, you need to get out. So we'd go for a drive. And we'd go up into the mountains, which are, you know, an hour away. And the drive and listening to music and having a change of scenery and just being in nature was enough. And then I literally would come back and I'd work till 8, 9, 10 o'clock at night because I had been completely restored. And you emphasize two things that I hope you'll talk about. One is just the power of being in nature as a state shifter, but also experiences of awe, which is maybe perhaps a little bit harder to achieve, but maybe not.
1: Yeah. Nature is, look, it's a freely available tool for many of us. And it's one that has consistently positive benefits for our mental well-being. In fact, there's an article published in the Wall Street Journal, I think yesterday, which just asked, is two hours in nature the new 10,000 steps? per day. And so what we know about nature, exposure to green spaces in particular, is this. When we're consumed with chatter, that exerts a real toll on our attention, right? We're hyper focused on this problem. And we know that our attention is limited. We can only focus on so much stuff at any given moment in time. That's why when you read a few pages in a book, when you're worrying about something, you often don't remember what you've read because your attention is elsewhere. And so what scientists have shown is what nature does is it allows us to replenish those limited attentional reserves. So when we're out there in nature, assuming it's a safe nature space, you don't have to worry about lions coming to get you and bobcats in your area maybe, you can let your guard down. Your attention is just very gently consumed by your surroundings, the pretty foliage, the mountains. You're not thinking really hard. And that in turn allows those limited attentional reserves to come back and it gears you up. So that when you get back from your drive, you could put in another three or four hours on your manuscript. So that's one pathway that nature helps. But the other one has to do with this experience of awe, which nature often provides. Awe is an emotion we experience when we're in the presence of something vast and hard to like, really understand. So I'll often get it when I think about the number of stars in the universe, like I can't contemplate the billions of planets out there. It's hard for me to actually understand that number. And what we know is that when people experience awe, it basically, it leads to what we call shrinking of the self, right? When we're contemplating something vast, we feel a whole lot smaller by comparison. And with it, so do our concerns. And so nature often does that too, but you can also experience awe in other ways. I'll often get it, for example, when thinking about Flying, like, how do we figure out how a plane can actually take off and land? So you could find awe not only in nature, but in lots of different places. Those are other tools, like, it's how you can regulate your chatter from the outside in. It's how our environment is set up to give us tools if we know where to look for that.
0: Well, what I hope we've accomplished, at least, is to suggest that there are myriad ways that you can sort of monitor and tamp down the negative chatter. And it's up to people to choose what they put in their toolbox. And you've given them some really wonderful ideas. Nature happens to work for me, but so do. (laughs) I'm looking at something I've got on my desk that sort of gives me this, you know, feelings of power and confidence. And so I sort of check all the boxes. Yeah. But I encourage our audience to read the book because it's obviously much greater depth and why this works and, and how you ought to be thinking about it. So before I let you go... I have like this big and wide question for you. So, you know, keeping in mind that this is a leadership podcast, when it comes to ways of harnessing our own inner voice, I wonder, so I'm just going to throw the big question out. I wonder if you think meditation fits into this. I wonder if you think affirmations can be a, a good tool to use in offsetting our negative voice, negative chatter. And then finally, your advice for helping us all maintain better control of our emotions and for us helping the people that we manage maintain better control over there. So how's that
1: for a a broad question? (laughs) Okay. In 60 seconds or less. (laughs) No, you have time. So we're good. So, you know, so I think meditation is, it can be a very useful tool and being in the moment, but I would encourage listeners to consider it as a tool. It's one of many. And I think that often gets lost. It's not a panacea. I don't believe there are any chatter panaceas. There's no single magic bullet out there. There are different tools. We have different tools for a reason because they can interact to help us combat these states. So if you're inclined to meditate and it works for you, I would say keep doing it. But if you find it challenging to meditate, there are other options available that could be helpful as well. The question about how does this all relate to affirmations? Oh, affirmations, like Saturday Night Live kind of things, like you're good
0: enough, you're smart
1: enough, and doggone to people like yeah. me.
0: Now, you know, once again, you know, <laughs> we're taking it to extreme, but you know, I am confident and courageous, something like yeah, that. Yeah, I would. You well, know? you
1: know, I think I would try doing it in the second person and see what benefit they give you there. Uh, you know, I think in some cases...
0: Meaning Ethan is strong and courageous. Yeah, you're
1: going to like give yourself the pep talk, basically, like you're talking to someone else and see if that kind of affirmation has more of an effect. There is a literature on affirmations, self-affirmations, and it's, it's somewhat mixed. Last time I checked, in terms of the benefits that they provide, there's some evidence that they can be useful, but it's not across the board. But I do think that oftentimes when we're mired in chatter... The problem is, we have trouble believing what we tell ourselves. So, and I think this is where stepping outside the self, giving advice to ourselves like we are someone else can be really useful, right? Like that helps us believe what we're thinking. So, that's where Ethan, you're a good human being. You're going to be okay. Like that might be more powerful than I'm a good human being. But, you know, that's a question. Maybe we'll do a study and report back and tell you what we found in a few months. The last question, though, about leadership, I think the ability to lead ourselves well is a critical capacity that has really important downstream implications for organizational success and personal success. I think if you're not leading yourself well, you're going to get into trouble. You're going to get into trouble because if you succumb to chatter, we know that it undermines your ability to focus and perform. We know that it can degrade your relationships and we know it can interfere with your physical health. And so all of those things make you less effective at work. But being able to lead yourself and helping others do the same for them, I think also has real value, right? Because as a leader, it's putting you in a position to teach your team to be better self-leaders, and that should make them perform better and be healthier and have teams work more effectively. So I think there is both a benefit for the self as well as for the entire organizational culture that comes from really mastering self-leadership.
0: Thank you for closing the loop there. Obviously, this is a departure from podcast kinds of focuses that we've had in the past. But I'm so convinced that what you just said is true. And coincidentally, today, the day that we're recording this happens to be Thomas J. Watson's birthday. He was one of the former, maybe the most influential chairmans and CEOs of IBM. And he actually has this quote that I tweeted out that says that your ability to lead really starts with your ability to lead yourself. And if you're not effectively leading yourself, you're going to fail. Yeah, I love that. And so you just punctuated that really brilliantly. And speaking of brilliantly, you're a wonderful guest. It was just a great delight for me to have you on. And in the letters and emails and the tweets that I get from people who listen to this podcast, it's universally. God, you have incredible guests. And so I'm always just especially grateful when I know in the moment that I can't wait to present this to my audience because... I've done it again, so the universe has rewarded me for being a good person, I suppose.
1: Well, I would just say it's an interaction, and this was an enormously fun conversation. So thank you for the kind words, but even more than that, thank you for doing your homework and reading the book and coming prepared to talk. I mean, it was a delight.
0: Thrilled to do it. His book is Chatter, The Voice in Our Head, Why It Matters and How to Harden It. Ethan Cross, on behalf of my audience, thank you so very much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me. Take care, bye. Bye Bye-bye.
0: Before we go, I thought I'd share a little background on the Lead from the Heart podcast theme song. Many people have asked me what it is and where it came from and why I picked it, and this month happens to be the 80th anniversary of when it was first recorded. It's called Take the A-Train, and it's a jazz classic written by Billy Strayhorn and first performed by his longtime writing and arranging partner, the great Duke Ellington, when he was just 23 years old. Wall Street Journal recently featured a story about the song and said, it summons the energy of urban life, the forward movement of a city filled with hustle, bustle, and optimism. And I chose it for my show because it reminded me of all the people who, in a pre-COVID world, had to get in a car, on a bus, or on a train every morning and night just to get themselves to and from a 10-hour day of work. And since our podcast is about caring and compassionate leadership, this song really punctuates our need for that to me. I want to especially thank my sound editor and producer, Eric Oz. His work behind the scenes consistently ensures you have a great audio experience. And what he does, I really truly is magic to me. So thank you, Eric. And finally, I leave you with my constant reminder, when you lead from the heart, your people will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley signing off for now and thanking you for listening.